For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. What's going on, everybody? Thank you so much for joining me here for this Tuesday edition of Fantasy MLB Today. We are a sports ethos presentation, of course, and I'm your host, Joe Orico. You can find me over on Twitter at JoeOrico99 and also at EthosFantasyBB. That's where you get all of our new content, whether it be podcasts, articles, polls, updates to the site, anything really on the baseball side gets shared out there. That's E-T-H-O-S FantasyBB. If you're not somebody who uses social media, Please do go to sportsethos.com, guys. That is where you get all of our great content across all four major sports. We do have gambling stuff. We have DFS content. We have specific team coverage, a lot of it on the NBA side, but we're also expanding that on the MLB side as well. So just go to sportsethos.com. Make sure you're checking out all that we got because there is a hell of a lot of content over there. But today, we are going to get back into our positional reviews. It's been a little while. There's been some news that we've had to talk about over the last few days. It's kind of, I don't know, it's been like a week plus, really, since we finished up outfield. Last week was kind of dominated with the Otani and Soto stuff. We also talked about some ADP values. And then yesterday, of course, we did actually talk about Shohei Otani being a Dodger and the impact that that will have on the Dodger lineup for fantasy. We also talked a little bit about the money aspect of it and how that will allow them to continue to pursue different free agents. So if you missed yesterday's show, please do be sure to check it out. But today, we are going to be reviewing the top 10 relief pitchers from Fantasy Baseball in 2023. We're going to be following the same format that we have been doing this entire time where we go to Yahoo and we look at their rankings, the way that they have these players graded out for the season. Now, I'm not going to be talking about players who are multi-eligible relievers and starters because... I don't think that makes a lot of sense to include Spencer Strider and Zach Eflin and those types in this show. Uh, We're not going to really be doing that. We're going to be talking about those guys in the starting pitcher shows that we're going to get to starting next week. So we're going to be talking strictly about the relievers, predominantly closers, especially especially this high up in the rankings. Uh, That is who we're going to be getting to today, starting with the number one reliever in fantasy baseball And that was Felix Batista. He returned first-round value, if you were looking at Yahoo, which we are, of course, number 11 on the season, 61 innings pitched, 8 victories, 33 saves, 110 strikeouts, with a 148 ERA and a .92 whip. Felix Batista was absolutely, like, it was one of the more dominant closer seasons that we've ever seen. If it wasn't for that one start against Houston, or not start, that one appearance against Houston, where he allowed four earned runs. Like, that was literally it for the entire season. That was the only appearance where he even allowed more than one earned run. For the entire season, it was only 10, and four of them came in that one outing. It was a really, truly special season that unfortunately ended a month early for Felix Batista as he is going to have to undergo, or he actually underwent already, uh, Tommy John surgery. So he will be out all of 2024. He's not somebody that we're going to look at from an ADP point of view for next year which has been something we've done on these shows, kind of look ahead, see what we think in the early ADP numbers. But Felix Batista is not somebody, unfortunately, who's going to be pitching for us next season. The numbers below the surface were just as good. That 148 ERA, you're looking at a 188 FIP. You're looking at a 230 XFIP. He was just really, really special from a lot of different standpoints. Uh, Sierra is a number I really like to look at as well. Uh, skills indicative uh, ERA is the name of it. I'm not really sure all the specific formulas that go into these numbers, but Sierra does seem to be the best one when judging a pitcher's performance. 2.06 was his Sierra this past season. A 46.4% strikeout rate. It did go along with a high walk rate of 11%, but a 46.4% strikeout rate is just absolutely absurd. It was 110 raw strikeouts, which was best at the position If, again, we're not including 
um, you know, the striders of the world who did qualify, depending on your site. We're just talking about strict relievers here. And there was really nobody better across the board than Felix Batista in 2023. Now, the thing that we do have to kind of look at with Batista is he is kind of an example of the volatility of relievers as a whole. He was like absolutely dominant. But if you watch Felix Batista pitch, and this was pointed out by a couple of different people to me, um, specifically the guy, a good friend of mine, Mike, in my home league who rostered Batista last year and I guess had more reason to watch Batista than the average person would because he rostered him on his team. He th- When he throws, and I really started to look into this uh, going on YouTube and watching old footage of games and whatnot, like when he throws, it really is such an aggressive motion. It looks like the arm is going to fall off at every single turn. And that's not just the Batista thing. I think that's in general more of a pitcher thing now. Not necessarily the aggressive motion, but just trying to get every ounce of velocity that you can out of every single pitch, pretty much. And that's going to lead to more of these catastrophic-type injuries, which we have seen with Batista now. He's going to miss an entire year, and he's not really the youngest guy. He's 28 years old now. He's 28 and a half, technically speaking. So he's going to be like 30 years old the next time he steps onto a mound. And I wonder, and we've talked about this before, if it would just benefit these guys to take you know a mile or two off of these pitches and just focus more maybe on the pinpoint kind of velocity, or not the pinpoint part, but like the accuracy part of the equation as opposed to just throwing the ball 100 miles an hour every single time. That's what he's averaging on his fastball. He's averaging 100, I think 102, 103 was around the maximum this year for him. And he's throwing that 70% of the time. It's going to put a huge strain on your arm, and we saw that now with Batista. And it's just kind of a reminder. He's far from the first, far from the last reliever or pitcher in general who's going to suffer through an elbow injury, have to undergo Tommy John. But with these guys who do have these really aggressive motions, the guys who throw so fast, and that is more commonplace with relievers, you do have to kind of be cautious of them because they are going to be more prone to injuries than probably the average pitcher is. Relievers are already going to be throwing generally a little bit harder, but guys like Batista, where it's like their only pitch that they're really throwing in every time, if you just go back and watch it, go look up some Felix Batista highlights from this past season, he's really like every single every single fastball, it looks like his arm is going to fall off. So again, it was incredibly successful this season for him, but it just goes to show you that you know, there is going to be a very high volatility level with with these relievers. And it's something that we already know. I'm not, you know, breaking any news to anybody there. But it's just, you know, just something to keep in the back of your head as well. When you're looking at these reliever profiles, the guys who maybe don't throw quite as hard and are able to get by using more of an arsenal, maybe throwing 96, 97, as opposed to 99 and 100, there's probably going to be less of an injury risk with them. And again, Batista was exceptional this year. But just that type of guy is going to be a little bit risky going forward. And I don't know what to make of him now when he does come back. He's not somebody who had a terribly long track record at all. We're talking two seasons in the big leagues where he kind of took over as the closer. Uh, 2022, after Lopez was traded at the deadline, that was generally when he kind of started getting saves. And then we saw it this past season. Now there's a good chance they signed Craig Kimbrell, who we're going to talk about later, that Kimbrell is just a a one-year guy. He's just a stopgap while Batista's hurt. And then Batista could come back and get that rollback. But I don't think that's necessarily set in stone. Now, I'm not much of a dynasty player. I don't really give dynasty advice. But I got to think Batista is a pretty risky asset right now in dynasty leagues. Obviously, in redraft, we've already talked. He's not going to be somebody that's on the radar at all this season. There's no chance that he's going to pitch. I mean, who knows? Miracles do happen. Maybe he comes back at the very end of the season or something. But I, I, I don't think so, right? Everybody seems to be advancing these timelines of Tommy John. Uh, I think it's more so on the batter side, but regardless, uh, there's no need to worry about Felix Batista. We're going to be going into next year, similarly to this year, without the number one closer actually in the pool, because Edwin Diaz, who was the number one closer the year before, missed this entire season. Now, some of you, if you drafted early last year, missed out, and you drafted Edwin Diaz, and then he got hurt, and it sucked, Um, but... In a lot of cases, um, you probably didn't. I mean, it really depends. I think a lot of people draft close to the season. But uh, either way, it's going to be the same kind of situation going into 2024 where the previous year's number one closer is not going to be on the board. Let's move on, though. Let's talk about the number two relief pitcher from last year, and that was Devin Williams. 58 and two-thirds innings pitched for him. Eight victories, 36 saves, 87 strikeouts, a 153 ERA, and a .92 whip. He was the number 15 overall player if you are looking at Yahoo's rankings just outside of the first round in a 12-teamer and just at the end, obviously, there if you are talking a 15-team league. Devin Williams has really, truly 
been one of the best relievers in baseball for his entire career now. Even in his first season, which was his absolute worst year, we're only talking 13 games in 2019. It was a 380, uh, 395 ERA. And since then, starting really in the shortened season in the three years since, you're looking at a .33 ERA followed by 250, 1.93, and 1.53. You're always looking at around a 40% strikeout rate, 38.5, 40, 37.7. He's just one of those archetype closers, right? He's doing exactly what you are kind of expecting uh, out of a closer. Now, he's not doing it so much with the heat as he is with using more change-ups. He has that nasty change-up. He throws a lot. Still throws a fastball 40% of the time, but it's like 94 on average, 95 for Devin Williams, I believe. He's not really somebody who's going to be throwing it as hard. And maybe, like we said, there's a little bit more stability in that type of profile. Now, I've heard talk that he's somebody who could potentially be traded, but I don't really expect that to happen necessarily. I mean, there. You know, the Brewers are kind of a weird organization. They let go of Woodruff. I think there's a chance they're going to trade Burns, but I don't know that they're going to necessarily get rid of Devin Williams. There's a couple of years left of team control on him. Maybe he gets traded a year or two from now, but I don't think he will be traded. And even if he did get traded, he is you know one of the nastiest relievers in baseball. I don't think there's a situation where he'd go to where he wouldn't step in as the guy. Uh, you know, you could maybe argue in a couple of places, but I, I think honestly, pretty much anywhere you're talking about Devin Williams, if he were to get traded, he's still going to be the closer. So I don't really have a concern uh, at all from that standpoint. Now, he is pretty damn expensive, uh, Devin Williams. He is in most drafts going off the board as the first relief pitcher, pretty much in all of them. 37.7 is his ADP. 22 on the minimum and 60 on the maximum. I do like that 60. That's real nice back end of the fourth. 22 does feel a little bit early. That would be somebody I would imagine in that draft who's trying to get ahead of the curve and take a closer because they know they're not going to be coming back for another 15 or so picks. They don't want to miss out on a big closer run. We're going to talk about this more and more, but I'm a a little more comfortable kind of waiting and not taking those guys who are going in the third or fourth and maybe go for the guys in like the fifth or sixth round, right? Joan Duran, Rizel Iglesias, David Bednar, Alexis Diaz, uh, Jordan Romano. A lot of these guys were going a couple rounds later, even uh, Paul Seawald, Ryan Presley. I, I think I'd rather wait a couple rounds and get fairly similar production, even if it's not to the same extent, than spend like a second or a third round pick on Devin Williams. I don't really have any problem with it. If you're getting him at ADP and you're getting him there at 37 and you're talking like the middle of the third round of a 15 or you're talking like third, four turn of a 12-team league, then I don't have any problem with it. But I also don't think you necessarily have to and don't think, oh, shit, I've missed out on Williams and Hayter and Diaz and Classe here, and now I don't have a stud closer. There are stud closers that are available throughout here, so I wouldn't be too worried about it. Again, I think it's a fine draft pick. I wouldn't be shunning away from it, but I also don't think that it's uh, something that you necessarily have to do. Don't be taking a closer there prematurely just because you're de- you, you, you think that you're desperate for one. Or if you see, you know, Williams and Hayter go off the board, immediately take Diaz. Like, that's not necessarily what you have to do this year. I think there are some good closers spread out, and we're going to talk about them over the next couple of days here. Next up is a guy that I don't think anybody really had uh, any expectations for this season. Maybe they thought that he'd get some saves randomly here and there. But I don't think there was a lot of buzz at all around Tanner Scott coming into the season. I had one share of him that I got in a draft Champions League And I think it was round 40 or 41, somewhere in that. It might have been like 37, 38. It it was very, very late. He was not somebody that was being drafted with the expectation that he was going to be a closer or that he was going to be a valuable reliever in any sense. The Marlins relief pitcher situation last year was kind of a mess. There was several different guys who got closer opportunities. It was Robertson for a while, and it um, it was Scott, and it did move around. There were some moving parts there. So it wasn't like Scott had the closer role for the entire year, and yet... He finished as the number three reliever. The reason is, well, the nine wins were huge for that value. 12 saves, obviously massive for that value. And 34% strikeout rate to go along with incredible ratios. He had a 231 ERA, and he had a .99 whip. So even when he wasn't actually getting saves for you, which came, you know, they were here and there, but he threw a lot, 78 innings pitched, and they were really reliable innings where even if you look under the hood as well, they're actually sustainable-looking numbers. Like, he didn't do anything this year that looks like it was, like, crazy, that he can't repeat again. Like, it was a really, really solid season up and down 
for Tanner Scott. And I had the one share. I was very happy for that share. It was on the best team that I had, the team that I drafted when uh, we were live in Arizona last year, my first time at the First Pitch Arizona Conference. That team turned out to be the best team I'd ever drafted in my life, probably. Uh, well, I'd won other leagues with worse teams, but I think that overall that team was amazing. And part of it was with guys like Tanner Scott that I hit on later on, and he was honestly probably the biggest hit that I had in those later rounds. Just incredible value. Not somebody that I really had you know, high expectations for. I figured he was kind of, you know, guy. maybe if Floro got hurt or if, you know, there was some situation in the back end of the pen where they needed to go to Scott here and there because he throws left-handed. Like, I don't know. I figured I'd get some saves out of him, but I did not think I would get this kind of value. You got to remember, even last year with the 20 saves, it was a 431 ERA. It wasn't anything really to write home about. You know, I, I don't think that a lot of people really saw this coming. Now, for next year, and, and also on top of that, the whip last year was 1.61. So it's not like there was really much to indicate that this was going to be a fantastic season for him. Now, going into next year, I don't really know how I feel about him. His ADP is 118, which does feel reasonable. He does feel like one of those guys that you can kind of speculate on a little bit later on in your draft. You don't have to use a very high draft pick on him. 88 is the minimum, which is fairly expensive for sure. But 217 is the maximum on Tanner Scott. If you're looking at that kind of graph that we've talked about, the ADP scatter plot, he's generally going in like the 120 to 130-ish kind of range. Sometimes going up as high as 100 or so. And I guess if you're looking at the most recent few drafts, you're looking at about 125, give or take. 119 on the ADP, I, I have no real problem with it. Um, I think that there is some risk, and it's not necessarily just from him, but I don't know how much I trust the organization to just go with one closer. They've shown that they're going to move around a little bit potentially uh, over the last couple of years that they will use different guys in that role in the ninth inning. The fact that Scott's a lefty means that he might come up in the eighth inning if the situation calls for it, if they're going to face, you know, let's say they're facing the Yankees and it's the top of the order and it's going to be Juan Soto and it's going to be Verdugo or whatever and then it's going to be Judge after, whatever it is, and that's the eighth inning. Like, he's going to pitch the eighth inning and he's going to face the lefties probably. So I don't know that you can draft him with the expectation like Steamer has here of 28 saves for you with a 302 ERA. I think that would be really nice. And they're also thinking 31.5% strikeout rate, which is generally what he's done. But I think they're a little bit too bullish, if anything. Like, I think you can maybe pencil him in for like 20 to 25 saves, best case scenario. I think 28 is probably pushing it a little bit. I think the ratios will probably maintain to some extent, but they're also very volatile with relievers. You know, even though he threw a lot of innings this past season, 78, if he goes back to what it was the previous year, 62, those innings count that much more when it's when it's a few when it's a smaller number and if he's given up you know even just a few more homers or whatever it is like if he regresses a, even a little bit and the numbers do generally think he will regress like in terms of home run rate uh, in terms of the walk rate they do they don't expect it to maintain to the same level but they're expecting generally the same kind of results and i think that steamer might be overestimating him a little bit here i still think that he's going to be a, a solid probably a solid draft pick in that range but again, he's not somebody that I'm going to be like rushing to draft. He's not going to be a guy who's on my target list. If I happen to need a closer and I'm at that range, then I'll probably take a chance on him. But if I've taken a couple of guys already and I get to Tanner Scott and I miss out on him, I'm not going to be kicking myself for it because I do think that there is some risk there considering the organization and considering that, you know, this was kind of the one great year he's had. He was really good in 2020 in the short season. But other than that, you're talking about a guy with a four ERA for his career. Good strikeouts, but also a hell of a lot of walks in the profile. You're talking a 12.5 rate for his career. It happened to be 7.8% this year. Will that repeat? I don't think it will. The projections think the walk rate will go back up to 11. I just don't know how Steamer can really project a lot of regression across the board and then think he'll have a 302 ERA. I think you got to be projecting at least like 3.5 to 3.75 for him. So, and, I, and that's where a big chunk of the value came from. And you also got to look at the nine wins from last year. That's a very high number for a reliever. Is that going to happen again? They're very volatile. There's nothing to say that he'll have any wins next year. It might be two. It might be, you know, it might be 12. It might be six. There's no way to really project it. I think that his overall fantasy value is not going to be anywhere close to what we saw this year, which I think is a, is a fair statement to make because he was the 29th ranked player, according to Yahoo. Whatever you think of Tanner Scott, he's going to be nowhere near that good. But let's move on. Let's talk about David Bednar. David Bednar was the number four player, or number four reliever, I should say, in fantasy. 
and had a really, really excellent season again. He seems to be somebody who is always talked about in trade rumors. He's somebody that I didn't think would be on the Pirates still at this point, but there he is. And he was a number 42 overall player here on Yahoo's player ranker. 67 and a third innings pitched with three wins, 39 saves, 80 strikeouts, a two ERA right on the dot, and a 1.10 whip. Another excellent season for David Bednar. Another year where I'm going into the season thinking, are they going to trade him? Are they going to keep him around? I'm not really sure. Obviously, he's got a couple years left on his contract. I think he's arbitration for a couple of seasons. And I think, according to Fangraphs, here's a free agent in 2027. So with a couple of years service time, the Pirates not really necessarily going to compete in the volatility at the closer position in general, where we know that guys are usually good for a couple of seasons once they kind of get into their 30s. You don't necessarily see that continue a lot. You do get guys like Jansen, like Kimbrell, and a couple other examples who are able to kind of do it into their 30s. But generally, being a closer is a young man's game. As Bednar gets older, I think the Pirates should probably try and capitalize on what they've seen the last couple of years and get a couple of assets for him. Because realistically speaking, I don't think the Pirates are going to be anything better than like a 70-win team, best-case scenario. I'm kind of forgetting now how many wins they had this past season. Uh, it was 76. So what are we talking? Maybe they're able to do that kind of same general thing again, and maybe they trick themselves into thinking in a weak division that they can compete. I don't see a lot of value in keeping Bednar and having him be so valuable on such a poor team because it's been three seasons in a row now where he has been one of the best relief pitchers in baseball. And I think now is the time where people are fully starting to appreciate that and they're starting to draft him a little bit higher up now because he's earned that respect. A 223 ERA in 2021, 261 last year, and then two on the dot this season. Generally, he's overshooting his metrics a little bit. If you're looking at like XFIP, if you're looking at Sierra, he should probably be a bit higher, but you're probably talking about like a three ERA, maybe a 3.2 ERA, still really solid. And I think that he's a lot better than what Steamer is projecting at 3.61. I think that's too high to project for him to be at. They're projecting the walk rate to go up to a high that we haven't seen in like ever, really, going back to his rookie season in San Diego, where we're talking 13 games, and they're projecting the, the strikeout rate to go down to 27.5%, which is not something that he has done in his Pittsburgh time. I don't really see why you would project those kind of numbers. I think that he's probably going to maintain what we've seen these last three seasons. The strikeout rate did come down a little bit this year, but he had been at 32.5 and, and 33. To go down to 29, I think that's generally just kind of like within the range of variance you're going to see. Yeah, it's a little bit more than you'd want to see at 4%. Uh, decrease, but I think that you're probably projecting a little bit too much to say it's going to come down another percent and a half. I think it's just as easily could go up to like that 31% mark or 32 again next year. I think you got to project him for like the career mark of like 30% with the walk rate around where it's been recently, which is about seven, seven and a half percent, which is amazing for a relief pitcher, even if you want to call it eight percent. Usually with a high end closer, you're talking about a guy who's going to be walking about. 10% of batters, roughly. And that's not what you're seeing from David Bednar. There's a lot of value there. He's a very stable closer. He's got a very stable profile for me. And wherever he's pitching, right, if he does get traded, which I still think is a possibility at some point, whether it's this offseason or heading into next year, the, the situation can only improve. He's not going to be acquired by a, a shit team because, you know, why would Pirates trade him to Oakland to close or to the Nationals to close like it doesn't make sense if he's going to be acquired it would be for a good team there are several teams that you can look at around baseball who do kind of need closers uh you know there maybe teams that don't necessarily need closers but like the Rangers might want to upgrade over Jose Leclerc who knows how the Yankees feel about Clay Holmes the Cubs with Alzale you know there are different teams who may want to kind of upgrade there and Bednar could be a guy that uh, could be acquired and probably should be acquired by a team. I don't know if it'll happen or not, but either way, I I'm pretty comfortable going into the season with him. 63 is the ADP right now. 32 is the minimum pick, and 108 is the maximum pick for David Bednar. If you're getting David Bednar a pick 108, that is an absolute steal. 63 even at the ADP. You're talking like the beginning of the fifth round there. That feels pretty damn reasonable. It's generally been trending up recently, and we've seen him a few times over the last few weeks be drafted inside of the top 50. He's still slipping in a couple of drafts to closer to like 75, but if you're wanting David Bednar you're not going to be able to pay those prices. And it was late November, early December, where a couple of drafts he slipped outside of the top 100. Just can't really see that happening. If that's if you're able to do that, for sure. But I think anywhere starting in like that fifth round range of a 15-team league, so anywhere beyond pick 60 or so, 
that's where you're going to be having to take him, and I think that's a very reasonable spot to take him. He might even be gone by that point, considering the way that the ADP is trending. It might even continue to go up as people continue their offseason research and just see how excellent David Bednar has really been. So consistently for a bad team, it's really damn impressive. Even just the raw save numbers, uh, 39 this year. Like, that's really good. That's been a complaint last year, only 19. But you're talking 39 saves this season for David Bednar for this awful team. He had the, you know, more than half of their wins were Bednar saves. That's a huge number. Maybe it doesn't repeat, but there's not really a lot you can look at to criticize uh, anymore. You might have been able to come at the save total. It's not something that you can do anymore with him. He's going to be excellent. Let's keep going. Let's talk number five on the relief pitcher rankings, and that is Josh Hader, somebody that I was huge on coming into the season. I definitely smelled a bounce back like a lot of people did. In 2022, he had a lot of personal problems. His wife had pregnancy complications, and there was, uh, I think once the kid was actually born, there were further complications. I think, I don't, I don't know all the specific details, but there was a lot going on for Josh Hader in 2022 on top of the fact that he was traded midseason. And it was a dreadful year, a 522 ERA, where he wasn't really striking out the batters as much as he was the years prior. It wasn't like, you know, it was still 37% strikeout rate, but he just really wasn't the Josh Hader that people had, you know, come to see over the previous few seasons and recognize as one of the best closers in baseball. He still ended up with 36 saves. It was still a valuable season from that standpoint, but he absolutely murdered your ratios. To go along with the crazy ERA, he had a 128 whip. It was a bad season, but we got the bounce back this year from Josh Hader. Albeit down the stretch, he didn't pitch as much as we would have liked, but still, if you're talking a Roto League, you got 33, sa- uh, 33 saves out of him, you got two wins, you got a 128 ERA, and you got a 110 whip. That is just excellent for Josh Hader. Now, down the stretch, it was kind of weird. We only saw him pitch 23 innings in the second half of the season I don't know what was up with that, really. I don't know what the reporting is. I know that there was something in the second half of the year, closer to the end of the season, where Josh Hader made it clear to the Padres that he wasn't going to pitch more than a one-inning stint in a game. He wasn't going to be going out there in the eighth inning and going for a five-out save or a six-out save or, or anything like that. And if I'm just going through his game log this past season, I don't think there was a single time, uh, no, there wasn't a single time where he pitched more than an inning. You know, the most batters he faced in any outing this year was seven. So he was very clear to them that he did not want to be pitching more than an inning. Maybe that was making them more reluctant to use him down the stretch because there weren't a hell of a lot of save opportunities. I think they honestly needed Josh Hader more than he wanted to be used for. Like, they they were in more of a need for him because of the way that that staff wasn't doing as much as they wanted. The whole team was really underperforming, and they were not doing well in in one-run games. They weren't very clutch. I think they needed more out of Hader, but Hader, you know, whether it's to his credit or not, put his foot down and said, I'm not going to be throwing more than an inning at a time. And I heard a lot of different opinions on it at the time, and I honestly don't really know how to feel. Like, yeah, that's generally what's expected out of a relief pitcher, but going into free agency, I don't know if that really is going to be a helpful narrative for Hader. Like, he's going to get a closing job. He's obviously going to get a job as a closer, whether it be with one of those teams I mentioned earlier, Texas or Chicago or maybe Philadelphia. Like, there's a bunch of teams that could sign him. But I don't know that he did himself any favors necessarily going out there and saying, I don't have to do this. I don't have to go out there and extend myself more than than you know one inning at a time. Regardless of that, I, you know, I don't really worry too much there. I mean, maybe I can't just dismiss it because – if he is going to be somebody who does become kind of like a clubhouse kind of problem like that and doesn't get the pitch as much, then it does become a little bit of a problem. 56 innings pitched, you're maybe hoping for a little bit more than 56 innings pitched. You're taking Josh Hader in like the third round of your draft probably. You're you're probably hoping that he was able to throw you something closer to what you saw from most of the relievers in baseball, which was or most of the top high-end relievers, which was – at least like 60-some-odd innings pitched, some of them even pushing 70. We said with Scott it was 78. So that's what you'd be hoping for with Josh Hader. But I don't think you can necessarily use that against him to this point. That might have just been something about trying to remain healthier because he was heading into a contract year or he was heading into an offseason where he's needing uh, to sign a contract. So 
I'm not really going to be so worried about it. I still think Josh Hader is a really elite pitcher. He'll probably get back up closer to like 60, 65 innings next year. And he still was generally in line with what he had thrown the couple of years prior, 50 and 58 in the last two seasons. But I think you kind of need a little bit more out of your closer. I think the Rangers are the team that makes the most sense to sign him. I don't know where they are currently on the reporting process for that, but I think that's probably the union that does make a lot of sense here for Josh Hader to go to um, Texas. I have a Jose Leclerc shirt, uh, Jose Leclerc share in an early draft. So I don't know how great that would look afterwards, but I think that is the move that does make the most sense here. Now, Josh Hader is expensive. Like I mentioned, you're generally paying like a third round price of 43.2 on the ADP. 30 is the minimum 85 on the maximum. I don't know how he fell to 85 in a draft. I'm thinking that was, yeah, that was a pretty big outlier, but it wasn't even that long ago, actually. Uh, it was just a few weeks ago where he did fall to pick 85 in a draft. I don't know how the hell that happens. I don't know what format that was. I'm not going to do all the filters right now and figure it out. Either way, you're not really paying that price for him. You're going to be paying a third round, maybe early fourth round price for Josh Hader. And I do think that's fine. He's still going to be a great source of strikeouts. He should be excellent source of ratios for wherever he goes. You're still probably looking at about 30 saves. You're looking at probably close to 100 strikeouts because even in the fairly limited innings pitch that we've seen the last few years from him, 102, 81, and 85 strikeouts. If he'd thrown even a regular workload down the stretch and pitched 65 innings, you're getting 100 Ks out of him. I think that that's probably what you're likely going to see, uh, something closer to that next year. He's still fairly young. He's 29. Um, it's not, you know... It's not like the youngest thing, the youngest guy in the world kind of thing. He's going to be 30 when next season starts. But I think that you're still probably going to get pretty damn solid production out of Josh Hader. Again, like I mentioned with uh, Devin Williams, I'm not rushing to draft him because I just think that I can make that up a little bit farther down the board in my various drafts. I don't know that I need to be taking a third-round reliever. I'd probably rather take a position player or a starting pitcher there. But if you do end up taking him and getting a nice base of strikeouts and ratios and saves with your third-round pick, then I'm not going to fault you for it. I think that there is definitely value, especially if you're able to get him like in the fourth, beginning of the fourth. Then, uh, and then you are able to do that sometimes. I think that there is uh, a lot of value in that. Even though it's not something that I'm going to be generally recommending, I don't have any real problem with taking Hater there. Let's move on to Alexis Diaz, number six on the closer, or I should say relief pitcher rankings this season. He was somebody that I was pretty damn worried about heading into the year and not somebody that I had any shares of. But damn, 37 saves, a 3.07 ERA. He was just absolutely electric. A 119 whip is a little bit high, but I think you'll take uh, what he gave you here and be very happy with it. He was the 48th ranked player overall on Yahoo. I should also mention nine victories for him, which obviously helps a lot. It's a very volatile stat, but he has played 130 games now as a relief pitcher, and he has 16 wins, which is a really high number. That is a really, really, really high number uh, for Alexis Diaz. Now, the reason why I was worried is he had the 184 ERA in 2022 over a 63-inning sample size, but it was a 397 XFIP. It was a 332 FIP. Just a little bit higher, quite a bit higher than what I would really be hoping for. Uh, Sierra was 376, so it's still good, but I thought that he was probably going to be a little overdrafted. I was worried about the ballpark factor because Cincinnati is a terrible ballpark for pitchers. We all know this, but he was able to overcome it, and Alexis Diaz was one of the best, absolute best relievers in baseball. The 37 saves, 9 wins were absolutely huge for Cincinnati and for Diaz and for fantasy managers as well. The strikeouts were not quite the same level as 2022. He fell off from 32.5% to 30.1%, but still a really solid number. Like, you know, exactly what you're hoping for with a closer. About a 30% strikeout rate, you're generally getting like a 10-11% walk rate. For him, it's a little bit higher at 126 but I think considering everything he does, uh, you're, you're pretty happy with uh, the 12% walk rate. It leads to a bit of a higher whip, which is generally kind of a concern with relievers, but overall, uh, Diaz is pretty damn excellent. Now, they're expecting some regression if you're looking at the projections for next season. A 432 ERA is what they're calling for. A 136 whip, only a 27% strikeout rate. Definitely concerning to see that. Uh, you know, the saves and the wins are always so hard to pinpoint in projections because they're so random. The way that wins are awarded, the way that saves are awarded sometimes, the way the teams can blow them, the way the teams can you know go to extra innings and the guy doesn't actually deserve a win and blah, blah, blah. There's so many different random scenarios where they're very hard to predict, but I, I tend to agree. He's not going to get the nine wins again. That's just a really fluky high number. 
37 saves for a team that, even though I think is going to be good, is probably not going to be amazing. I don't see Cincinnati getting to like, you know, 90 wins, 85 wins. They had 82 wins this season. They were 82 and 80. Unless they get like a real true impact starting pitcher, I don't think that you can really project them for much more than that. I think they were about as good as you could have possibly hoped for this season. Uh, in terms of like where the guys are in their development, they're still a very, very young team. I don't know if you can really say that they're going to be taking another huge step forward next season. Maybe they do, um, but I don't think there's going to be that many more win opportunities and therefore that many more save opportunities for Diaz. I do think that ballpark is going to be an issue. It hasn't, bite, uh, hasn't bitten him in the ass just yet. He's only given up nine home runs in his entire career, which is incredible. I'm um, just pulling up the splits here right now uh, for home and away. But in total, we're talking six home runs that he has given up at home in 68 innings pitched. In that ballpark, that is just not really realistic, I don't think. He is going to be giving up more homers than that in the long run. Even though he's been a guy over the first two seasons of his career who has been able to control that, I just think that there is a limit to what you can do in that ballpark, especially for a guy who does not have great control. There are going to be pitches that get away from him. Still a fairly young guy at 27 years old. Not a hell of a lot of major league experience. He came into the bigs at 25. Like I think that there will be some struggles. So I do tend to kind of agree with the projections, even though I think they're maybe overstating it a little bit. I don't know if the ERA is going to be quite that bad at 4.3, but I think there's definitely a possibility for it. I'm not really touching him at his ADP. I think that it's, you know, it could pay off for you, but 66.4, you know, call it 66, call it 67. I think that that's a little bit expensive for me. 43 is the minimum pick. 115 is the maximum pick. And if we do look at the scatter plot here, you're generally paying like in the 50 to 60 range for him recently. You know, sometimes even a top 50 pick he's going. Sometimes he's fallen. He's fallen outside of the top 100 a couple times, but you're generally paying like, you know, 50-something for him recently. And I think that that's a little bit too expensive for me. He's going right at the same range as David Bednar, three picks after. I can't think of a reason to take Alexis Diaz over David Bednar. I think Bednar is so much safer. I think even a lot of the guys who are going, you know, beyond and even just in that similar kind of range, you know, Jordan Romano, I think, is a lot safer. You know, the guys we mentioned earlier, Seawald and Presley, I think that they're safer. There's just so many options uh, as you go down further into the back end of the top 100 and even outside of the top 100 where you can speculate on some saves and not even speculate, like take a guy that you're pretty damn certain of and you don't have to take a chance on a guy who is pitching in a terrible ballpark for a team that you know is probably going to get better, but they might not. There might not be as many save opportunities for him, and I think the profile is overall kind of volatile. So I'm going to be out as of right now on Alexis Diaz, unless that price really falls closer to like 80 or 90. Even then, I mean, if it was 80 or 90, I'd be more interested, but pushing the top 50, I think is just a little bit too pricey for me. Let's keep it going. Let's move on and talk about number seven. And that was Evan Phillips. Evan Phillips was kind of a nice surprise. I don't think uh, a hell of a lot of people were expecting him to be as good as he was. I know maybe some people were, but I don't know that there was a lot of certainty heading into the year around the Dodgers' closer situation. I think that we were pretty sold on the skills of Evan Phillips. I just think we weren't sure if he was going to be getting saves or not. There was a lot of names thrown around, Gratterall, and I don't know how many guys we talked about uh, when we did our Dodgers preview show last year that could be getting saves. But Evan Phillips got 24 of them. He had a 2.05 ERA, and he had a .83 whip. He was absolutely excellent. A 28.2 strikeout rate and a very rare 5.6% walk rate for a closer. He was one of the best pitchers, I think you can say, honestly, in all of baseball. He was the number 50 ranked player overall, everybody, all in on Yahoo, which is just phenomenal. You know, it was backed up by a 3.08 Sierra. He was just somebody that I was really a huge fan of. Um, I didn't, actually, did I have any Evan Phillips shares? I don't think I did. No, I didn't have him on any teams, but he was somebody that wasn't terribly expensive. I think in some cases, maybe in you know your your shallower leagues, he was just a waiver wire pickup once you figured out that he was getting the majority of the shares, uh, the majority of the saves, I should say. And then you just kind of ran with it from there. Now, I have a couple of concerns here. Uh, he has overshot his advanced numbers by like a run and a half each of the last couple of years. So drafting Evan Phillips, expecting a two or a sub-two ERA is probably unwise. The projections think it'll be about 3.6, which is, yeah, probably about what you're going to see. Now, they think the walk rate's going to go back up to about 8%. I don't think it'll be that high. I think you're probably still looking at about 6 7%. But my main concern here with Evan Phillips 
is I think the Dodgers are going to go out there and they're going to go out and get somebody with all this found money and now realizing that they have this you know three-headed monster at the top of their lineup and we talked about this yesterday I think that they're going to either throw a lot of money at Hater or they're going to try and make a trade acquisition for a high-level closer or somebody I don't know they're going to do something and I think that maybe it's Hater I really don't have a, a solid prediction on Josh Hader, but it wouldn't shock me at all to see the Dodgers just overpay it for Josh Hader. Overpay for everybody because they figure, okay, let's just overpay a little bit for everybody, make sure we get every free agent, and then we'll take some of that money that we should be paying Shohei right now, and it'll go into these guys. I think that that's what's likely to happen here. And whether it's Hader or somebody else, I think there's a chance that Phillips could be displaced. So if you are drafting him, I wouldn't be you know, setting in stone that you're getting 25, 30 saves. I think it's definitely possible, and if they don't go out and get anybody, then it should definitely be him. But he's got a kind of risky ADP for me of 106. 74 minimum, 246 maximum. I don't know where the hell 246 comes from. It was two random drafts where he fell really late, but generally you're looking at around you know, inside of the top 100 to pushing about 120. That's the range where you are getting him. I think that it's just a little bit too risky. Again, I don't know why the hell he fell to 250. If you're getting him at 250, then I'm going to have no problems at all taking Evan Phillips there. But if you're having to take him with a top 100 pick or even like 110, 105, I just think in that same range, like go for Pete Fairbanks. You know, Pete Fairbanks doesn't really have competition. You know, you're worried a little bit about the stability, about the health factor there. But why would you take Evan Phillips? I mean, at this point, right? And this is for early drafters. We'll have more clarity on this once it comes to January, February, March, once we know where players have signed. And then we'll, we'll revisit this because we'll do team previews, we'll do position previews and category previews. But as of right now, if you're drafting today, there's no reason to take Evan Phillips where there is that worry over a guy like a Pete Fairbanks in the same kind of range. Or even honestly, like I think you could even make the argument that Tanner Scott is a, a realistic kind of comp there. He's going about a round later. I still do have some worries with Tanner Scott, so it's not the greatest comp, but it's a cheaper price to pay for a guy who also has some questions around him. If you're drafting today, I think it's kind of a toss-up between those guys, honestly. It's not as cut and dry as you would think based on the ADP. Uh, so I think there are worries with Phillips, but they will be cleared up once we know where Hater signs and once a lot more offseason moves have kind of cleared up, and we'll see where guys are going to be slotting in next year. All right, let's keep it going. Let's talk Camilo Doval. Camilo Doval was one of my huge fades coming into the season. The Dodgers, or excuse me, the Giants, kind of, you know, with their actions last year and with their words, almost told us that he wasn't going to be somebody that they relied upon fully as the closer. You know, I think that, um, was it Taylor or Tyler Rogers? I always mix up the two brothers. Uh, it was Taylor Rogers who they brought in last season as a free agent. And we were worried for a good portion of the offseason last year, at least I was, and a, a lot of people were, that he was going to be taking away opportunities and it was going to be some kind of lefty-righty kind of split there out of the pen and that Duvall, who was being drafted inside the top 100 or close to it, was not going to get the opportunities to close like you would expect based on the price you were paying. But 39 saves for him, a 293 ERA, excellent strikeout rate of 31%, 9% walk rate, you know, prototypical closer right there. Just everything you were hoping for. Rogers ended up having just, you know, he had a good season, the 383 ERA, but only had two saves. He was not somebody that was relied upon as a closer at all. He had 12 holds, two saves. That was it. Only two save opportunities. He converted both of them. He was not somebody that was ever in competition there. So it was one of those things where they kind of said that they weren't sure about Doval. They brought in Rogers, who has closing experience. Uh, even just in the year before, in 2022, he had 31 saves. He had been closer in 2019 and kind of sporadically in between there with Minnesota. So there was genuine reason to be concerned about Duvall coming into last year. Now, this year, I don't have any of the same concerns. There's no reason to think that Duvall is not going to be the closer heading into next year, and that's why you are paying the price that you are on him, which is generally in that same range that we have talked about for a lot of these guys today. Uh, where where did Doval go now? Um, has he moved around in ADP or am I just blind? No, he's right there. Uh, he's actually just a little bit more expensive than a couple of the guys we have talked about today, Bednar and Diaz. He's going at pick 51, actually 52 technically because it's 51.95. That is his ADP. It's a little expensive, but it is, I think, justifiable. Not to say that I'll be taking it because, again, I think I'm waiting on closers a little bit more this year. I might take like one guy in this range in a couple of drafts, so maybe that will be Duval. 
Um, but I think I think it's pretty damn reasonable considering what you are getting out of him. The profile I think is fairly safe. Uh, you know, he's not a guy who has huge walk problems or anything like that. Like he walks, you know, more than the average guy probably at nine point three percent. But for a reliever, that's kind of standard. You know, it's nothing out of the ordinary. Really, it's not like you're getting a twelve, thirteen percent walk rate where you really have to be concerned. He's been excellent. He's been excellent. You got more strikeouts from him this year than you did last year. You got fewer walks. That's the obvious formula for success. Striking out more batters, walking fewer batters, and that's what he did. He was able to bring his whip down from 124 to 114. The ERA went up a little bit, but overall, you know, 253 to 293. He pitched the exact same number of innings as the year prior. You're talking three earned runs more over the course of a whole season. It's really not a big deal when you look at it from that point of view. The underlying numbers were really solid with Duvall. So if you are going to be taking a closer early on, he might be the guy that I'm pointing to just because in that early range there, he's a guy that you're getting kind of on an island on his own between some of the other guys. Because the early closers by ADP are Devin Williams, it's Josh Hader, and it's Edwin Diaz. Those are the guys that are going in the 30s and the 40s. Then you have Duvall at 52. Then after Duvall, you don't have another closer until Rizal Iglesias is 61. So you might have a chance there where he's kind of on an island for you in like the middle of the fourth round where you didn't want to pay that late second, early third, but you still want to lock down a closer. You can take Duvall in the fourth and feel pretty damn good about it. The team isn't excellent around him. They're probably about a 500 team. You know, who knows? They might get Yamamoto. They might make a couple moves and be a lot better than we think. But overall, you're talking about maybe a 500 team. You can probably pencil in about 30 saves, similar kind of strikeout and walk numbers, and overall uh, probably looking at another really good season from Duvall. The projections are calling for a 332 ERA. They're not calling for anything drastically changing with strikeout and walk numbers. They think he'll be down a couple percent in strikeout rate, but I think that that's generally just volatility that they're projecting because of Probably the nature of the position, but also because he's gone from 34 to 28 to 31 in his strikeout rate over his short career. So I think that there's just a factor of like the previous seasons being factored in there. But you're probably pretty safe to look at a 30% K rate there from Duvall. Overall, I think that he's a very safe guy to be targeting around where he's going. Let's talk number nine, though. The newest member, I believe the newest member, unless there's been some other signing recently, of the Baltimore Orioles. Craig Kimbrell. Craig Kimbrell came back to life again. He seems to come back to life and die every couple of seasons now. That's the way that his kind of career arc has gone. If you look at the ERA numbers, if you look at the save numbers, it's kind of been an up and down uh, second part of his career. But he gave you a hell of a good season. He gave you eight wins, 23 saves, a 326 ERA for you. Now down the stretch, Kimbrell was not as great um, if memory does serve. It did kind of tail off in the month of August. Now, that was kind of the, the really bad month. It started off pretty bad, to be fair. Uh, April, it was a 4.09 ERA. May, only nine innings pitched, but it was an eight ERA for him there. And then you're looking at June, it was 0.69. July, it was 138. And then in August is when he took another big hit with a 5.73 ERA. You go to September, it was 1.50. So it really was up and down for him in that regard. But if you're looking at what it ended up as on the season, it was a 3.26 ERA. So it's really hard to complain about the overall product that Kimbrell gave you. You're talking about a 35-year-old who has been closing games in the major leagues for 13 years now, and he's still got it. You know, He's still pretty damn good. He might not be the Kimbrell that was giving you 50 saves early in his career for Atlanta where he was a legit Cy Young candidate, but he's still a damn good closer. You know, He's fallen off but he's fallen off from such a high place where he's still able to maintain a lot of value, even for fantasy, real life, whatever it is. And that's why he just got a nice contract. I believe it was $13 million uh, as a club option for 2025 as well on the Kimbrel deal. I guess that'll kind of depend on what happens with Felix Batista and how his recovery is going. If Felix Batista looks like he is going to be you know, real healthy, then they probably don't need Kimbrel. Maybe they take him either way. But if Felix Batista is looking terrible in his recovery, setbacks, blah, 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 then maybe that's where they exercise the option on Kimbrell. It'll depend on what his performance looks like this season. But it's a good sign for his fantasy value, especially if you happen to have Kimbrell in a dynasty league. He's still going to be getting saves for at least one more season. Now, we talked about this when we did our ADP fade show, that Yanir Cano was going to be a big fade for me. Uh, he's already going to, his ADP has fallen drastically. He's somebody that I don't even know if he's necessarily worth taking in a 15 team, 30 round draft. He might be like a last couple round pick there. Maybe, maybe as like a stabilizer for ratios kind of thing. But even that wasn't really something you could rely upon for him down the stretch. So I think it's kind of just Kimbrell or bust here in the Orioles bullpen. If Kimbrell does have a shit start to the season, then it probably does become Cano. That's probably where they do go with it. 
but it's going to be Kimbrell giving the shot to close, and that's the role that he's going to have. You know, everybody talks about this, and it's true that Craig Kimbrell doesn't really feel confident, doesn't feel comfortable unless he is a closer. We've seen him occasionally over the last couple of years in like setup roles where he's not really the guy, and I don't think it's necessarily for him. I think that he is a guy that has been his entire career the ninth inning guy. He has 417 saves. He is one of the greatest closers in the history of baseball, and he's going to go to the Hall of Fame. There's no question about it. He is going to be one of the few closers that does go to the Hall of Fame. And I think he's earned the right to conclude his career, as long as he's not terrible, as a closer. And the last couple of seasons, 326 ERA, 375, 226, it was bad. You know, it was real bad in 2019 and 2020, but he has corrected that. And I think until he shows that the wheels have fully fallen off, uh, he is going to be given that chance to close. So there's no real worry there if you're drafting Craig Kimbrell that, oh, I don't think he's going to get the job, blah, blah, blah. I don't know. Like, he is going to have the job. Now, the ADP, this is factoring in everything. I haven't filtered out the drafts, but over the course of the entire draft season, Kimbrell has gone 30 picks lower than Cano, 171 to 206. 30, 35 picks there. You're talking on the difference. Kimbrell has a wide range, 96 to 322 on his ADP. Now, since he has signed there over the last week or so, however long it's been, you're seeing that ADP kind of climb, and he's going inside the top 200 pretty much every single draft at this point. And there was even a draft, I think it was just the one, uh, and that was recently, like I said, where he went 96. So you are having to pay up for Craig Kimberl. I think that probably stabilizes somewhere in like the 120 range-ish because there are going to be people who are concerned with the aging Kimberl, what he'll be able to give you. Will he be able to still go out there and pitch You know, a full workload? He threw 69 innings this year, 71 appearances. That's a huge workload. Will he be able to repeat that again? That was the largest workload he's had in terms of games and in terms of innings. Well, first of all, in terms of innings pitched, that's the highest since 2017. And in terms of games, first time he's gone over 70 since his rookie season in 2011. It's a long, long time since he's had that kind of strain on him. Will he be able to repeat it? There are reasonable questions, but I think as long as that price doesn't get too high and you're still getting him like post-pick 100, he's one of those guys that I'm going to be pointing to as a great value. And we've talked about this a lot recently. The boring kind of guys that just fall, even though they're still being you know, generally pretty productive players. And I know Yahoo's grading system isn't perfect, but he was the 59th-ranked player, according to Yahoo. That's pretty damn excellent for a guy that you're going to be drafting probably outside of the top 100. He's still going to be on a good team. He's still going to be getting saves. He's in a park that's going to suppress home runs uh, to right-handed batters. Like, There's a lot to really like about where Craig Kimbrell is going. And he did have a home run problem this season. Will that continue in Baltimore? Probably not to the same extent. So there is a lot to really like here. He is somebody that I think you can target as long as you're getting a reasonable price. And for me, that's probably about pick 100 or later. And I could even justify probably going around pick 90 or so. Uh, I think that that would be pretty reasonable. Because generally speaking... That's the range where there's not a hell of a lot of closers. You're getting Seawald and Presley in the 80s, and then you get Munoz at 91. After that, there's not another closer till Fairbanks at 102, and then there's a couple guys after. But if you are kind of in that range, like the mid-90s, you're hoping for a closer, I, I can get around taking Craig Kimbrell. Uh, I really can. But let's talk about our last relief pitcher of the day, and this is where it really varies depending on the site that you are using, where the value comes from. What I mean by that is we're going to talk about Tyler Holton, who's a relief pitcher for the Detroit Tigers. And if you are using Yahoo's site, which we are using for these, that is what we have done for all of these rankings, then he came in as the number 10 relief pitcher on the season. If you are using Rasball's rankings, which a lot of people use and is the industry standard, pretty much, he was the number 36 relief pitcher as opposed to the number 10 relief pitcher. Now, a lot of you guys probably have no idea who the hell Tyler Holton is. If you play in deeper leagues, you might have, and he might have actually saved your season for you to some extent this year because he gave you 85 and a third innings pitched. He won three games, and he had one save. So you're probably thinking, what the hell is Joe even talking about this guy for? Yahoo is out to lunch. But in those 85 and a third innings pitched, 74 strikeouts, a 2-1-1 ERA, and a .87 whip. That is like about as good as you could possibly hope for from a non-closing relief pitcher. I don't know what you can really really ask for outside of that you're talking about having a guy who is throwing about a half a season worth if you're talking like a starting pitching season generally like a full season these days is like 170 or so there was only a this is kind of crazy but there's only 43 qualified pitchers in major league baseball last year 
throwing anywhere from 162 to 216 innings. So you're getting a relief pitcher like Tyler Holton throwing you 85 innings of a 2-1-1 ERA. Even if the other half of those you're using, like, you know, just to kind of fill in an actual starting pitcher slot, let's say you're getting the other half of those innings from like a streamer where you're getting about a four ERA, then you're getting about a three ERA on average, even if you're just streaming in average pitchers with a four ERA because of what you're getting from Tyler Holton. So I'm going to generally have to kind of agree with Yahoo saying that he is a lot more valuable than the number 36 reliever. When he's giving you that kind of volume, with those kind of ratios, while chipping in a you know three wins is nothing to sneeze at, especially from a relief pitcher. You might have a pitcher, and we've talked about a couple of relievers today, who like Evan Phillips only had two wins. There's a couple of guys we've talked about who did not even get to three wins with those full closer numbers. So when you're getting a good strikeout number in 74, which isn't you know it's again not a crazy strikeout number by any means. It's not something that is going to blow you away, but it's still a good chunk of strikeouts where you're getting 74 of them. Okay. You're getting literally like half of a starting pitcher from a guy like Tyler Holton. And again, he is not somebody that I'm going to be advocating drafting next season because he was pretty lucky this year. He had a 376 XFIP. He had a 356 FIP. His strikeout rate was not crazy like I talked about. He's not somebody that, you know, it was 22.8%. He had good control at 5.6%. But overall, he got really lucky. And my point in this is not to say draft Tyler Holton next year. My point is to say that a guy who is like Tyler Holton, who we recognize whenever it is, that he is valuable, that he is giving you great production. And with a guy like Holton, it was consistent the whole year. His highest ERA in any month was 289 in the month of May. He was consistent the whole year, and there are guys like him every year that we can pick up on fairly early on in the season and just look at and say, okay, you know, they have been, for one reason or another, really good, whether it's through April, whether it's through May, whether it's through June. And you don't want to take a shot on these guys too early because there is a lot of volatility with relievers in general. But once you see they've gone like three months in their ERA, you know, first half of the season was 189. That's when you kind of think, okay, some of these guys just have these crazy magical seasons. And it's not to say that you guys in 10-teamers should be stockpiling your team with these guys, but in the 12 to 15-team range, and you can even have like one spot on your 10-teamers for this type of guy, there's a lot of value in having a guy like Holton or even, hell, having two guys like this. And we'll talk about more when we go tomorrow through the 11 to 20 range. There are other guys that we are going to talk about who weren't giving you crazy you know, uh, wins and save numbers. They were just kind of floating along there as relief pitchers and giving you really good value. He is the big example, but there's also a guy, like I don't even think we're going to get him tomorrow. We might, but like Joel Pyamps. He also had seven wins, so that was a big part of it. But like 77 strikeouts, a 255 ERA, and a 105 whip, over 70 innings pitched. Only had three saves. He wasn't the primary closer. He was just a guy who was consistent month to month every single month of the year and if you had him on your team if you had a couple of these guys then you didn't have to worry as much about streaming starters you could focus more in terms of your fab dollars or your waiver priority on other aspects of your team whether it's getting steals whether it's homers whether it's whatever it is and you could just have these guys kind of in your lineup week to week giving you five six innings pitched five six strikeouts and not giving up any runs most of the time. If it was a run, then it was like one run, and it's not going to blow you up, and there is definitely something to be said about that kind of strategy. Not to say that you have six of these guys on your team, but you have like two of these guys on your team, even if it's just one. The difference between having one of those guys and having just a middling starting pitcher who has a 4.2 ERA on your team is drastic. You're not having that massive volume from a starter that's going to weigh down those ratios, and it's going to happen. A guy throws 180 innings of a 4 ERA, that's drastically worse than a guy throwing 85 innings of a 2 ERA. It's just a massive, massive difference for you. Even though you're giving up some volume in terms of strikeouts and probably wins, I think that it's more important to focus on those two ratio categories because they're the ones that are the hardest, hardest ones to maintain. Wins can be streamed, I think, a lot easier than ratios. Even though neither is particularly easy to stream, uh, when you're picking up guys off the waiver wire, especially in a 15-team league, people are generally going for starters, starters or closers. But people a lot of the time will forget about these guys like Tyler Holton who come up every single year, and every single year they have value. And whether or not you believe he was the 10th most valuable relief pitcher this year, which might be overshooting it a little bit, he was definitely valuable, and he was definitely worthy of being rostered on pretty much any fantasy baseball team that you were playing this year. Maybe not so much in points leagues, but if you're talking about a category league, Tyler Holton was absolute money for you, and there are guys like that every year that you got to say, okay, I need one of these guys on my team because they are going to carry me or at least really help sustain me in terms of the ratios that I'm getting. 
So make sure that there is, I think, I mean, it'll depend on your strategy, but I think you got to make sure you got like one of these guys on your team. Not too early on, but come around midseason when you see there's some dead weight on your roster. There's a starting pitcher that is just weighing you down every single game. Cut him and go for a relief pitcher who is just solid. He's available everywhere. He's not going to cost a high fab bid. You can get him with the lowest waiver priority, and he's going to be a guy who is, you know, barring something crazy, going to probably go along and maintain like a sub-3 ERA with decent strikeout numbers, and no one's really going to take note, but you guys definitely should. Either way, that is my pitch. That is the first 10 relievers that we're going to talk about here from 2023 Fantasy Baseball, obviously. Uh, 2024 will be a bit of a different story because I don't think we'll get the same kind of chalky level of return that we got from 2023. Pretty much every reliever you drafted high up in 2023 returned great value. There weren't really any that were drafted in like top 100 or so that were busts. They were pretty much all excellent for you. Whether or not that will maintain, I doubt it, but we're going to keep going through it here. Tomorrow, we will go through 11 to 20. And then... We're going to probably do it the same way that I did the first set of reviews here. Uh, Outfield, we did change the format a little bit because there are so many outfielders. I think tomorrow we'll do 11 through 20 and talk about those guys. And then for Thursday's show, we'll talk about a few relievers who are not inside of the top 20, but guys that I still think are going to be interesting one way or another for 2024. We'll talk about Edwin Diaz because obviously he's not going to be in a review section. Didn't pitch at all this year, but we will still get to him on these shows. Uh, it won't be tomorrow, but it'll be likely the day after. And then, of course, when we do Mets previews and we do relief pitcher uh, previews later on in the offseason, we will touch on these guys again. But I'm going to leave you there. That's enough rambling out of me. You guys can check me out over on Twitter at JoeOrico99, also at EthosFantasyBB and SportsEthos.com. That is the website for you guys. Until tomorrow, guys, though, take care. Have a great night and cheers. Cheers.